Well, it's the 13th of May, and uh, you know what that means. It's Mother's Day, right? Well, beyond that, it's also the, the beginning of the election cycle, right? That seems to get earlier every time we go around. When is the election again? It's in November. Oh, yeah, that's right, November. But they're out campaigning and campaigning hard already. This past week, our president made some news when he had an interview with ABC, and in that ABC News interview, he made public his support for homosexual marriage. And in the news interview, he said the following as to the reason why he was now evolved in his understanding of such things in order to make public his support, to throw the weight of the office of the President of the United States behind this particular issue. This is what he said, and I quote, When I meet gay and lesbian couples, when I meet same-sex couples and I see how caring they are, how much love they have in their hearts, how they're taking care of their kids, when I hear from them the pain they feel that somehow they are still considered less than full citizens when it comes to their legal rights, then for me I think it it just has tipped the scales in that direction. That was lifted from his interview. Our president has a utilitarian view of marriage, a utilitarian view. That is that he understands marriage to be essentially based upon happiness and personal fulfillment, happiness and personal fulfillment. And if that is the basis of marriage, then indeed his statements make a lot of sense. To those of us, though, that hold to a biblical worldview, we understand how serious and destructive the implications are of a utilitarian view of marriage. We understand the ramifications of that type of approach to the very institution of marriage itself and ultimately to society at large. Ideas have consequences. But rather than spend time condemning the President of the United States, let's use our time this morning to do some self-evaluation with regard to our own view upon marriage. And we may well find certain utilitarian notions that we've adopted. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 and in verse 8 the following, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. Paul highlights in this verse the constant danger that faces all of us. The danger to 
be influenced by our ungodly culture. For it to seep in, for it to shape our thinking, to, for it to change the way we approach the world. Paul says, don't be taken captive by such things. Beloved, we are to some degree like fish swimming in the ocean. It is the environment in which we live. And, and you know, the fish, the crazy thing about a fish is that they don't know they're wet, do they? They spend their whole life and they never know they're wet. Well, the same kind of idea can apply to us. We live in this culture. We're swimming in this world. And in the process of of swimming in this world, it's likely we're swallowing some seawater. I think when it comes to the issue of marriage, it's pretty apparent. Like fish, we have swallowed some seawater. And it's evidenced by the poor track record of marriage among professing evangelicals. Poor track record. Even some of the questions that have come in to me over the past several weeks with regard to this topic illustrate how our culture informs our thinking. There have been several hypothetical scenarios that have been, that have been sent in as questions. And by the way, I, I really don't like hypotheticals. And the reason I don't like hypotheticals is they assume facts not in evidence. What I mean by that is there is a whole bunch of pre-assumptions that are never disclosed in the hypothetical. So they're hard to answer. That's why I don't like them. But these hypothetical questions that have come in, not all of them, but some of them, evidence the cultural assumptions that we have swallowed. And I'm not being critical of those who have sent in the question. You merely had the courage to write it down and send it in when so many others were thinking it and either didn't get around to it or didn't have the courage to send it in. But the cultural assumptions underlie some of these kinds of questions because a number of them begin with the same basic assumption. This was interesting to me. They begin with the same basic assumption that the Pharisees had in the first century. And that basic assumption is that the divorce is our legal right The question is, what scenario triggers the right? If my spouse does this and this and this, can I divorce them? That's the way the questions are phrased. Or, I know a certain person and this is what happened to them, so is it okay for them to divorce? Those are the same kinds of questions the Pharisees were asking Jesus. Is it permissible to divorce your wife for any reason? They said to him, Matthew 19. It's interesting and I believe instructive the way Jesus countered those questions. 
those questions that had those assumptions underneath them. He didn't really address them at all. He, he went beyond them back to Genesis, you remember? Back into the second chapter of Genesis, prior to the fall. And he built his answer from that. And what he said was that marriage is a good gift of God for a man and a woman for a lifetime. That's the biblical understanding. Now, we've been studying this topic for four weeks. This is the fifth and final. In those four weeks, we've learned a number of things. Let me quickly review them for you. When we began our first time together about a month or so ago, the first lesson began with a definition, a biblical definition of marriage. You remember that? And what we said is that that marriage was designed by God to be a covenant of companionship between a man and a woman for life. That is God's good gift to us. That is the designer's intent. We noted that the terms of that covenant, and this is all found in Genesis chapter 2 and in particular verse 24, the terms of that covenant of companionship were twofold. It was, number one, a relational exclusivity. That is that the marriage relationship transcends all other human relationships. It is the priority relationship. Secondly, We noted that the covenant of companionship assumed a sexual exclusivity. That is, that the sexual union of that husband and wife was to be a pure and undefiled and exclusive union. Her body for him, his body for her. And it was not to be violated. The covenant of companionship. Following that, in the next week, we looked at what the Old Testament has to say about the topic of divorce. And there we learn that divorce, although it is not part of God's original design, was both permitted and regulated under Old Testament law. It was permitted and it was regulated under Old Testament law. Sort of the premier passage was Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verses 1 through 4. And as we looked at that passage together, we noted that the big idea from that passage was that God gave that regulation in order to protect the wife from a capricious husband who might seek to discard her over the most trivial offenses. It was given for her protection. The week following that, we looked at, we began to look at the New Testament, and in particular what Jesus has to contribute to the biblical understanding of this topic. And we noted, and we noted it from Matthew chapter 5 in particular, that that Jesus taught that divorce is fundamentally an issue of the heart. It's not an issue about legalities, it's an issue of the heart. It stems from the heart. Divorce is never desired by God, but Jesus tells us in Matthew 19, it is allowable for sexual immorality. It is a concession to life in a broken and fallen world. Last week, Pastor Vince 
took us to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to sort of round out our understanding of the New Testament, and in particular there, he noted for us that God has called us to peace. Big idea. We have been called to peace. And in particular, Paul there in 1 Corinthians 7 and in verse 11, he notes that believers who end up divorcing are to reconcile. That's the point. They are to be reconciled. They are to bring the marriage back together. That's God's will for them. We noted as well in verse 15 that that the unbeliever who abandons the marriage frees, as it were, the remaining Christian spouse from the covenant of companionship and enables her or he to be remarried free of guilt. Notice, by the way, that both Jesus' exception for immorality and Paul's exception for abandonment both speak to the two components of the covenant of companionship. The breaking of the uh, the committing of sexual immorality is the breaking of the sexual exclusivity component. The abandonment is the breaking of the relational exclusivity component. So there's great consistency through the Scriptures as it addresses this issue. Pastor Vince made one more very, very significant point last week. I hope you caught it. And that is that that the church needs to be involved in the lives of the body. And in particular, they need to come alongside and help the believer who is in the midst of a relational tragedy before it occurs. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, the elders keep watch over your souls. And this is an issue of your soul. Jesus gave to the church in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15 and running through verse 18, a means, a procedure by which the church can help bring about repentance in the heart and life of, a, of an erring, a sinning member. We call it church discipline. It's designed to, to bring that person to repentance and in the, and in the context of a divorce situation, a marital dysfunction, then, then that process is to bring about repentance, which is to bring about restoration and reconciliation. If one party refuses that gracious procedure that Christ has put in place, and the church at the end has been given the responsibility to declare that person a functional unbeliever, thus freeing their spouse. So the church needs to be involved. Now we've entitled this whole marriage series, Marriage, Divorce, and Redemption. Marriage, Divorce, and Redemption. This morning I'm going to finish it. And I want to finish it, but I want to, I want to focus on the subject of redemption. All of this has been just review. So redemption is what we want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about Redemption. This may be really obvious, but I think it's worth saying. When a couple gets married, they do not plan to get divorced. But somewhere along the way, sin intrudes and brings with it 
death and destruction. The marriage begins so optimistically, so, so hopefully, so beautifully, and ends so tragically. Nobody gets married expecting it to fall apart. It's sin. It's when sin intrudes. So what I want to talk to you this morning about is sort of picking up the pieces. Picking up the pieces. We've said this before, it bears saying again, all divorce involves sin. But not all divorce is sinful. But there's always sin involved. That's even true of God's divorce of Israel. Sin is always involved. Beloved, what's the solution to sin? Speak to me. What's the solution to sin? It is the gospel. It is the gospel, and that's where we want to go this morning. We want to go to the gospel because, because it is the gospel. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is in the gospel that the power of God is made available to overcome the power of sin. We can never lose sight of that. All right, here's what I want to accomplish this morning. This morning we will look briefly at three aspects of the gospel. Three aspects of the gospel as it relates to the sin associated with divorce. So that we may walk in the grace of God available to us only through that gospel. It's a gospel message this morning. Three aspects. Are you ready? Number one, repentance. Number one aspect of the gospel, repentance. I've subtitled this, examine your heart. Examine your heart. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sin, and God will heal your soul, the Bible says. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to facilitate some heart examination this morning, and I want to do it by asking a series of questions. Actually, I have four questions. So I'd like to ask a, a series of questions, and they're, they're sort of aimed at different people, not individually, but types of people. And they're designed to, to cause some self-evaluation, some self-examination of our own heart that the Spirit of God might grant us the gift of repentance. So here we go. You ready? Number one, first question. This is addressed for, for those who are presently contemplating divorce. For those who are presently contemplating divorce, this question is for you. Why do you want to get a divorce? That's my question. Why do you want to get a divorce? That might seem like a kind of a silly question, right? Is that simplistic? No, I don't think so. I think it's actually a very revealing question. 
Why do you want to get a divorce? Listen, if your answer to that question begins by asserting your rights, your rights to happiness, fulfillment, comfort, ease, or or any other self-focused idea, now let me say to you, you have lost sight of what it means to live like a Christian. I want to get a divorce because we're not happy anymore together. I want, to be, I want to be divorced from this person because my life is miserable. They make my life miserable. I want to be divorced from this person because they're, they're holding me back. They're, they're keeping me down. They're, they're depressing me. They're, they're whatever. I don't love them anymore. I can't be fulfilled as a person. If that's the answer, you're not thinking like a Christian. You have lost your Christian focus. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 beginning in verse 43. Let's drain off the seawater a little bit. Matthew 5 and beginning in verse 43. Now, what in the world does this have to do with marriage and divorce? Well, let's see what Jesus has to say. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Love your enemy. If you have to love your enemy, it seems like you've got to love your spouse. Don't you think? You've got to pray for those who persecute you. It seems to me you need to pray for your spouse, don't you think? Would they fall outside of that command? Are they worse than your enemy? This is radical stuff. This is, this is gospel stuff. This Christian stuff. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Because if you don't, you're no different than the unsaved world. Second diagnostic question. This is for those who have already experienced the pain of divorce. 
This question is for those who have already experienced that pain. Here's the question. It's a hard one. What responsibility do you bear for the failure of your marriage? What responsibility do you bear for the failure of your marriage? Don't tell me about the louse you were married to. Tell me about yourself. What responsibility do you bear? Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Or as my mama used to say, there are two sides to every story. Now that's hard. That's a hard thing to own up to. Particularly when you have been so hurt and maybe even legitimately mistreated. It's hard to own it up. I remember years ago when I was in seminary taking a class in pastoral counseling. The professor was, we were talking about this in the, in the, the role of pastoral counseling is when a couple comes in for marriage counseling and, and he was just warning us to, to be slow to form your opinions about where the, the faults lie in this relationship. Take your time. Ask good questions. Pray. Weigh the evidence. And he illustrated it this way. He said, he said I learned this lesson in a very vivid way a number of years ago. He said, I was, it was a Saturday morning or something like that. And he, was, he said, I was out front. I was kind of watering my lawn in the neighborhood. And one of the neighbors, a lady in the neighborhood, she, she walked by and, and she stopped. And we talked for a moment or two. And I noticed that she had a black eye. He said, I couldn't help myself. I said to her, what happened to you? How did you get that black eye? And she said, my husband hit me. And he said, at that moment in time, all of the emotions welled up in him, the, you know, to be a protector, a provider, all of that sort of stuff. And he said, there's no way I'm going to let this guy get away with doing that. So he dropped his hose And he marched up the street, and he was going to confront this guy. The guy was in the driveway with the hood open to his car, and he's bent over the engine compartment. The professor said that I I went up to him, and I said, whatever, Hank. (laughs) Poor, Poor Hank, he always gets blamed for everything. You know, if you don't like Hank, then you know how it goes. He says, I just saw your wife, and he says, uh huh. Doesn't even lift his head out of the engine compartment. He said, uh, she's got a black eye. And he said, uh-huh. And he said, uh, she told me you hit her. And he said, uh-huh. He said, what, did you, what do you mean? Where do you get off hitting her? And Hank took his head out of the engine compartment. And he looked at him and he said, did she tell you that she pulled a knife on me? He said, right then and there, I thought, oof, two sides to this story. Two sides. We need to be careful. The, the point, we need to be willing to examine our own hearts. 
what responsibility do we bear? Third question. This is for people who have divorced without biblical permission and have remarried sinfully. They have divorced in violation of the Scripture and they have remarried sinfully. This question sort of comes up with regard to this this whole topic. Okay, I find myself in this position. So, So here's the question. And it's really not my question to them as much as their question to me. Should I divorce my present spouse and remarry my first spouse? We're talking about repentance. I, I understand what I've done is wrong. I have sinned. How do I repent in this? Do I, do I divorce the second spouse and, and try to remarry the first spouse again? The answer is no. The answer is no. By your remarriage, you have precluded the possibility of going back to the first spouse. Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 4. You are now married to your new spouse. Legitimately, lawfully. Your repentance, if you find yourself in that situation, is to acknowledge your sin in leading to this predicament in which you find yourself, and now to demonstrate the outworking of your repentance by working to make your present marriage as good as it can be, the best possible marriage it can be. That's how you'll demonstrate that you understand where you were culpable and that you are repentant over that. You make your second marriage exemplary. That's what repentance looks like. Fourth, fourth category. This is for everyone who has not been divorced and can't understand how it could happen. I've never been divorced. I I just don't get it. How does it happen? Here's my question for you. How have you sinned against the divorced people that you know through your judgmental and arrogant attitude. How have you sinned in your judgmental and arrogant attitude? You know, one of the false and hurtful ideas about divorce that I've encountered over the years is is a teaching that goes something like this. Every time a person who is divorced and remarried without biblical grounds is, is intimate with their spouse, they're committing adultery. Through the years, I've encountered that teaching. Every time, you know, they were illegitimately divorced and remarried, God prohibited it, they did it anyway. Every time they're intimate, they're committing adultery. No. Let me say it again. No. Absolutely not. Do you understand the implications of that kind of thinking? What you're saying by that kind of thinking is that they are now a continual adulterer. Do you know what the the Bible says about continual adulterers? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9 that 
that adulterers, that is, those that continue in the sin of adultery, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that kind of teaching with regard to, to, to divorce and remarriage would say that this person has now been excluded from the kingdom of God by virtue of their divorce and remarriage. Is that really what you want to say? Is that what you want to say? Listen to me. There is only one thing that keeps someone from the kingdom of God, and that is perpetual and unrepentant unbelief. It is the only thing, the only thing. The right answer is, it is the initial consummation of the marriage that was an act of adultery. The initial consummation. But it is a lawful marriage from that point forward. And it is a marriage that is subject to all the rights, all the privileges, and all the duties, including conjugal duties, of any other first-time marriage. You need to understand that. Repentance. Examine our hearts. Second aspect of the gospel is redemption. Redemption. Subtitled, Flee to the Cross. Flee to the Cross. Listen, the Scriptures abound with assurance that those who flee to the cross and and trust in Christ's atoning sacrifice have their sins forgiven and they know the loving embrace of God. Can I hear an amen? I hope you believe that. Because listen, if you don't believe that, you have no hope in the world. We flee to the cross of Jesus Christ in repentance. We trust in His sacrifice on our behalf, and all of our sin has been forgiven, and we know the loving embrace of God. First John one seven. If we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from most of our sins. Is that what it says? All of our sins. All of our sins. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. That is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He atones for our sins. How about this one? Romans chapter 4 and verse 7, where Paul is actually quoting David. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed indeed. Blessed indeed. Beloved, what this means is that that our sin and the guilt that is associated with it is not bigger than the grace of God. Does that encourage you? It is not bigger than the grace of God. 
Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, Paul says, Where sin increased, grace abounded, literally superabounded all the more. However high sin is stacked, grace is stacked higher. Always higher. Need to add a caveat here because the Apostle Paul would add a caveat here. This is not a license to steal. This is not permission to pay fast and loose with the seriousness of sin. Right? We're not to adopt the attitude that says, you know, I like to sin, God likes to forgive sin, so we've got a good deal going. Specifically, we cannot say the topic here before us that I know divorce is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because God will always forgive me. Don't say that. Do not say that. Beloved, don't even think it. Do not think it. Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be, Paul says. What, are you out of your mind? No, 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 no. Absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we indeed? Listen. Romans 8.1 is true. It is wonderfully and beautifully true. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? That includes those who have fallen into the sins associated with divorce. If they have repented of their sin and fled to the cross of Christ, there is no condemnation. That doesn't mean there are no consequences. Old sins sometimes cast long shadows. But before our God, we have been freed. And in that, we rejoice. Takes us to the third aspect of the gospel. Reconciliation. Repentance, redemption, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Subtitle, Be at Peace. Be at Peace. Listen, because all divorce involves sin, there needs to be reconciliation when at all possible. There needs to be reconciliation if it is at all possible. When God saved you, He forgave all of your sin, past, present, and future. Right? Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way. And what a word picture. Having nailed it to the cross. It's gone. It's gone. Therefore, be at peace with God because God is at peace with you. 
Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. After Paul's magnificent discussion of justification by faith, the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, he leads off chapter 5 by this statement, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is at peace with us. God is at peace with us. And we're at peace with Him. It was a peace that was purchased through the cross of Christ. Accordingly, we're also to be at peace with others. Because we are at peace with God and God is at peace with us, we are to be at peace with other people. And we are to be at peace with them by taking whatever steps are necessary to be reconciled to them, if at all possible. Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, if possible, and Paul acknowledges it's not always possible in a broken world, but if possible, so far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men, all men. Do whatever you have to do to be at peace. Listen, this is where the elders of the church need to become involved. This is where we need the body to rally around us, help us. It's a difficult process to be at peace with people, particularly someone who has hurt you as deeply as you've been hurt. How do we go about it? How do we go about being at peace with our fellow man in this area of divorce? Let me suggest some things for you. I hate to keep reducing this to formulaic things, but I, I do this only to make it easier for you to memory for memory. So it's three steps. Sorry. Why not four? Why not five? I don't know. Three. This is not the be-all, end-all. You know, you don't have to, like, okay, I listened to the sermon. I know everything I need to know now. This is just sort of illustrate the process. It's a long process, difficult process. But here they are. Number one, put away anger and bitterness toward those who have wronged you. This is the beginning of the process of, of learning to be at peace. You need to put away the, the anger You need to put away the bitterness towards those who have wronged you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Boy, he really gathers it up, doesn't he? He says, you've got you to get rid of that stuff. You've got to put that stuff away. That is not becoming to a Christian. It's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't jive. It doesn't sync with what it means to be a follower of Christ. Peter says over in 1 Peter chapter 2 that, uh, that when you're suffering, you're to look to the Savior who was reviled and didn't revile in return. But he kept entrusting himself to the one who will do right. 
Boy, that's countercultural. We want revenge. We want to make them pay. We want them to hurt like we hurt. The gospel says no. No. Put it away. Put it away. Secondly, we need to extend forgiveness to those who ask. We need to extend forgiveness to those who ask. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, how has God forgiven me? What has He forgiven me of? When I start to put it on the scales, all of a sudden I recognize that what this person has done to me, comparatively speaking, is like a hundred denarii, right? To 10,000 talents. Matthew 18. Doesn't weigh out. Listen, forgiveness necessitates trying to put the marriage back together if at all possible. Let me say it again. Forgiveness necessitates trying to put the marriage back together if at all possible. And some would say, I'm not sure I can ever forgive. I'm not sure I can ever forgive. Go with me to Luke chapter 17 and verse 3. This is one of the most powerful sections when it comes to the topic of forgiveness. Luke chapter 17 and beginning in verse 3. Be on your guard, Jesus says. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. You've got to be kidding me. Increase our faith. If this is what it means, then you must increase our faith, O oh God. Sounds kind of spiritual, don't you think? That's why the response of Jesus is so astounding. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Teensy, weensy, little bit. Which of you... Having a slave plowing or tending his sheep, 
will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down and eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. I can't forgive It only takes this much faith. You don't need more. You need to use what you have. And you need to understand that by forgiving, you are only doing what you are obligated to do because you have been forgiven. Makes it hard. But it's true. It's true. Extend forgiveness to those who ask. Forgiveness necessitates trying to put the marriage back together if at all possible. Third, seek forgiveness from those whom you have wronged. Seek forgiveness from those whom you have wronged. This is the path of reconciliation. Let's assume you're divorced. You need to be, as far as it lies with you, at peace with everyone else. That is, you need to reconcile. Family members, friends, ex-spouse, you need to pursue it. It may not be possible, but you have to pursue it. How? Write a letter. Write a letter of confession. Not a letter of explanation. A letter of confession. After examining your own heart and seeing how you contributed to the the divorce, the disillusion of your marriage, then confess that sin and ask their forgiveness. Now, they may or may not grant it, but you seek it. Maybe family members along the way who who counseled you against this and you plugged your ears and ignored them. You seek their forgiveness. Friends who loved you enough to look you in the eyeball and say, don't do this, and you did it anyway. Seek their forgiveness. Write letters. If somehow in the divorce proceedings you you unfairly obtained alimony, return what you have unfairly obtained. Our culture, you're going to get a divorce, get the best lawyer you can and soak them. Listen, if somehow in the process you got more than was, was your fair share, you return it. That's what repentance would look like. That's what reconciliation, that'd be the path of reconciliation. David, are you crazy? Give them money? Yeah, actually, I am crazy. And give them money. (laughs) 
Because our life doesn't terminate in the here and now, does it? Listen to this. Repentance, reconciliation would look like this. To assume your proper obligations of child support. Maybe you've been ducking it. Repentance would say you own it. You start to fulfill your obligations. Repentance and reconciliation. All right, in just a couple of minutes that are left, I, I want to finish out this series, and I want to do it by, I want to ask one more question. I couldn't figure out where to fit it in, so I'm fitting it in here. That's the hard part, right, Vince? Try to tie all this in a big bow. So I have one last question. Here it is. How do we respond? How should we respond to a person who has been divorced? How should we respond to a person who has been divorced? I want to read you a quote from Jay Adams. Jay Adams is kind of at the forefront of the biblical counseling movement, been greatly used of the Lord. He writes the following. I think it's on the screen for you. Good. Quote, let us ask the question then, is marriage to formerly adulterous or sinfully divorced persons prohibited? Ask another. Is marriage to former murderers or liars or slanderers prohibited? There is no more biblical reason to believe that the first is prohibited than there is to believe that the second is. Either God's cleansing cleanses or it does not. That's well said. That's well said. If you have been sinfully divorced... You are now, not now confined to some sort of life of, of celibacy as your consequence, as the punishment for your sin. There is redemption. There is a way back. Another quote for you. A sinful divorce is forgivable. And a lawful divorce doesn't need to be. That's worth thinking about. A sinful divorce is forgivable and a lawful divorce doesn't need to be. So, how do we respond? How should we respond to someone who has been divorced? This is a very relevant question, right? We all know people. Compassion. We respond with compassion. Listen, the tearing of the one flesh relationship, no matter how troubled the marriage, is painful beyond imagination. Painful beyond imagination. And the pain of that tearing lasts for a very long time. A very long time. We need to have compassion for people. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. God forgives repentant sinners, and so must we. So must we. The church of Jesus Christ is nothing but a collection of wretched sinners who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? 
So let's act like it. Let's act like it and forgive. Finally, acceptance. Acceptance is kind of a derivative of the forgiveness. There are no second-class citizens among the redeemed sinners of God. Kind of hard to be a second-class citizen, right, when everybody is guilty. Acceptance. We are sinners saved by grace. I am, you are. It's been a difficult series. Kind of radical, actually. Where's the power come to live a radical life? A life that so contradicts the world around us, that, that just turns its values upside down. Where's that come from? I'm glad you asked. It comes from the gospel. It comes from the gospel. So when the gospel intersects our lives at every level, that it, it just flips things around. The power to do the kind of things we've been talking about doing here comes only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the power of the indwelling Spirit of God who takes resident within us the moment we believe. And from that point forward, by His grace and power, we live this life by the values of the next. And that, beloved, is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. May God add His blessing to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray.